You guys excited to be here tonight? You ready to go? Yes, yes. A uh, quick uh, administrative and other thing first. Look, if, I don't care what you're doing next Wednesday. I don't care if you, you know, whatever you got going on, make sure you are here next Wednesday. It's a very special night for us. Uh, Jason, the pastor uh, who founded this church, we're going to be sending him out to continue the fundraising process and so he can focus all of his attention on Piney Ridge Church in Wentzville. And so it's a, it's a strange night in that, you know, him and I have been here since the beginning, but we're very excited about the call in his life. So next week is going to be a very special evening. So I want to make sure that each of you are here. Bring your friends, bring your family, bring your neighbors, okay? I don't, just bring everybody you know. And we're going to celebrate what God's done in the life of Jason next week. Uh, but before then, uh, so, so First John, right? And we've been studying this amazing epistle written by John through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to this area of the world called Asia Minor. Now, if you've never been here for a recap, that, you, there's only two possibilities. You were here for the Genesis recap, which probably were, was a few of you, and some of you here for the Luke a recap, you know that it has the potential to get a little bit crazy. And, and this, this Wednesday night is no different. In fact, a big experiment tonight. But listen, so, so I, was, I printed off on the printer. You guys know what I'm saying? I printed off. I printed off the whole epistle of 1 John. And it took five pages of our amazing HP, like 10-year-ago printer that we use here at Matthias. And, um, and I just kept reading it. I kept reading it. I kept reading it. For those of you that know me well, you know that I like to draw things. I like to draw circles and triangles and squares. And so about the fourth or fifth time reading through it, I started drawing arrows and boxes and little. And about the sixth time through reading this whole epistle that, it, that has been a blessing to study and a blessing to teach. About the sixth time through, I, I sat back and I was like, hmm, that is interesting. And all of a sudden, even though we've taught this entire epistle, after reading it through six times, I sat back and for the first time had this, this new perspective. It's a perspective that you and I tonight are going to take a journey through. And, and when I say journey, I use that term very loosely, okay? So before we do anything else, uh, everyone needs one of these. So I have some helpers here. I have some helpers. So please start passing these out. Everyone needs one of these. Please hurry. I know the first, when you get this, this is going to seem scary. So I apologize, but just here we go. Lots, lots of people. Thank you. Yeah, there we go. We're very organized here. We don't know what we're doing. We haven't passed out one yet over here. Okay, good. Make sure everyone has one of these. Now, in front of your pew, in the handy-dandy old-school pew uh, thing, there's a pen. Make sure you pull one of those out. Uh, if you don't have a pen, I have a little bucket of extra pens here. Okay? Right here in this red handy day. So if you don't have a pen, hold up your hand. Who doesn't have access to a pen or a writing utensil? I can't guarantee that pen in front of you is going to work. It costs about negative se- a cent, okay? So, you know, the Sam's Club special. All right, so we're passing these out. Don't write in this yet. This is not a time for you to do your family, you know, diagram, okay? Don't write in this yet. Everybody have one yet? Does anyone need a pen by raise of hand? Pen back there, McNeil, come on. Seriously, figure it out. Are we good? 
Everybody have one. We, we, we need one back there. Every, everyone has to have one. Dave, right back there in the back. Yeah, right there. She's bold. I like it. All right, now does everyone have one? Everybody have one? Okay. Now, um, this is the way my mind thinks, okay? <laughs> You're like, and that's one of our pastors right there. There it is. Now, what happens when we begin to fill this out is something very intriguing. Listen, one of the things that I've realized through this journey of 1 John is that when I think about the concept of love, it has been so negatively influenced by culture. See what I'm saying? I think about it in terms, I talk about it in terms that culture could understand. And it's so much deeper than that. There's so much more depth to the love of God. And so what we're about to do is look at all of the deep theological, doctrinal, practical truths that John has described. You in those little, and there's 34 of them, and you're like, well, hold on, it's only numbered to 33. That's because there's an 11a. Notice that, all right? We're going to fill in all of those with tidbits from 32 verses from 1 John. So no matter, no matter if you've been here or tonight's your first time here, guess what? You're going to get the whole survey of 1 John tonight. In the hopes and the prayer that God reaches down and reveals something tremendous about his awesome love. I stand before you now in anticipation. Because if a body of people can be encouraged about the love of God, is there anything better? If we can just sit and bathe in his love. And how that's manifested in grace and mercy. It could be beautiful. So let's pray and we'll get to work. Because there's much work to do. Right? God. We ask right now. That you come and you dwell. And you speak and you teach and you encourage. I pray right now that you'll save some individuals here. Who have no idea who you are. I plead that God. Would you move in such a way that the scales would come off some eyes and marvel at your great love. We love you in your great and holy name. Amen. Put up the blank one for me. Thank you, Andrew. Now, here's the way this is going to work. You'll notice a little number to the left of each of the circles. That corresponds with the number on your particular graph. So you should be able to follow along. If you can't, there's a prayer room in the back. All right. Now, we're going to start, we're going to start where it all starts. First slide says this, and the corresponding verse is right underneath it. God is love. John Piper in his sermon on first John chapter four, verse eight, he said, God is love is the deepest statement that John writes in either his epistle or the gospel. The fact that God is in nature love is the catapult for everything that God does. So much so that his motive is interwoven in every action that he takes. And so that begins to open our eyes already, doesn't it? That causes you and I to have to sit back in our suffering. And remember that God is love. That causes us to sit back in those 
amazing times where it just seems like God is pouring out, pouring out, pouring out. Knowing the whole time that in his nature, he is love. Now he says two other things about his nature. First, number two, he says this, that God is light. In fact, he doesn't just say he's light. But in 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, he says, In him there is no darkness at all. Listen to this. And you guys know this. For those of you that are Christians in here, you know that the way the light of God works is it exposes. It reveals all. The light of Christ is so powerful that it literally holds your beating heart in its hand and exposes its need of God. Amen? But he didn't just say God is light. He also said this. Interestingly enough, we didn't spend a whole lot of time on it, that he is pure. And the purity of God revealed mostly in Christ. And we'll get to that. Now, John writes over and over and over about the fact that God wants to give something. And so this is what, uh, in circle number four, God gives eternal life over and over and over. He talks about how Christians have life, how they can see life, how they can experience life. And over and over and over, John writes that Christians can have eternal life because God gives it. How does he give it? Number five, he gives it by revealing his love in Christ. So God is love. And listen to this. This is awesome. If God in his nature is love, he doesn't just hold his love to himself and the other pieces of the Trinity. What does he do? He exposes it. He reveals it in Christ. And so in the person of Jesus, we get this phenomenal picture of what the love of God looks like. And can we agree it looks pretty beautiful? Amen? Now, he's pure... And because Christ is the revelation of God's love, then number six, John says this, Christ has no sin. Which is absolutely critical because if he had sin, then he couldn't be the unblemished Passover lamb. Christ has no sin. Now, this is the framework for all of the rest of your little diagram chart. We're going to come back to Christ, which kind of sounds strange, right? We're going to come back to Christ and we're going to focus on the other piece of the Trinity that God focuses on a lot. Number seven. Number seven. There we go. Number seven is this. It's on the right side of your paper. God gives the spirit. He doesn't just give life, but the spirit of God is a gift from him. Now, Here's the reason why this is such an important concept for John. You see, for John in Greek culture, who he's writing to, everything with the God is about appeasal and about earning and about merit. And so if God continues to reiterate the fact that he gives, that he provides, that he pursues, then it continues to take the onus off of his readers and put the onus on him. Shame us. When after having known the gospel, we continue to try to earn and take merit from what God so graciously gives. He gives his spirit, but not just that, number eight. The Holy Spirit then, after being given, 
will confess Christ. That's what the Spirit does. The Spirit confesses Christ. Now, the way I've seen this manifested itself here recently is I've kind of done a little interpersonal experiment, and you can try this at home uh, or wherever you're at. But here's what I've done. I've started asking people this question. What do you need to be reminded of? And at first they're like, well, what do you mean? No, I'm like, what, as pertains to the gospel, do you need to be reminded of? Listen to this. If I'm talking to a Christian, the scripture says that the Holy Spirit confesses Christ. And we'll get there here in one more minute about where the Holy Spirit resides. But if the Holy Spirit confesses Christ and I ask a Christian brother or sister, what do you need to be reminded of? Do you see what happens? I asked a friend of mine up in, the, up in my office about a half an hour ago. I said, what do you need to be reminded of? And here was his response. I need to be reminded that I cannot do this on my own. That this has nothing to do with me. That this is about the glory of Christ. And the Spirit is confessing Christ. You see? And as I ask, what do you need to be reminded of? My yapper stays closed. And the person who's sharing is just professing truth preaching, gospeling themselves through the Spirit. You see this? It's beautiful. The last five or six conversations that I've had and I've asked people that, I literally just sit there. And after they share, I can, like, I can see the joy welling up inside of them because they've just heard truth. So as Christian brothers and sisters, what I would propose is one of the greatest things we can do is just ask one another, what do you need to be reminded of? What, as pertains to the gospel, needs to just well up in you? The Spirit doesn't just confess Christ. Number nine, the Scripture says that the Holy One anoints with knowledge. Providing an opportunity as we read the Word to glean the truths from the Scripture as the Spirit opens our eyes and our hearts to all of the things that God would have teach us. And number ten, John said this, That this spirit, which confesses Christ, which anoints with knowledge, guess what? Resides in his children. And he describes it like a seed. He said his seed abides in his children. A beautiful picture. Are you guys all with me so far? Now, that, that wasn't overwhelming. Are you guys all with me so far? Okay, thank you. Now, we're working through this process to eventually get to a place where we can step back from this. But in the meantime, back to Jesus number 11. Now we're going to see three things about the nature of Christ in 1 John. The first thing that he says in John chapter 1 verse 1 is that Jesus was from the beginning. Now listen. This instantly takes out all the heresies that say Jesus was some creation later. Jesus was not an afterthought. He was the plan from the beginning. And in that theological statement alone shapes your entire theology of the rest of the scriptures. Because if Jesus was not an afterthought, if Jesus was the plan, then there's lots of other things that had to be allowed. Are you with me? And so when John says in the beginning was Christ, that he was there from the beginning, it's a huge theological statement. The next thing about the nature of Christ uh, as seen in uh, conveniently named 11a here, is that Jesus is God's son, his whole journey on earth, fully God, 
fully man from birth to death to resurrection. Now, here's why this is important. You remember the Gnostics believed that the Christ spirit came down on Jesus at his baptism and then left Jesus before his death because God could not suffer. So one of John's main theological premises is that, no, 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 Jesus, his entire journey on earth was fully God and fully man. Now, something we looked at last a uh, couple weeks ago is in number 12. Not just, do the, not just does the spirit provide us with knowledge, but Christ came to give redemption and also revelation. So in the nature of Christ, Christ reveals who God is. And the last piece of the nature of Christ is in number three. He came in the flesh. Now check this out. If Jesus came in the flesh, and Jesus is God, and Jesus was God from the beginning, and Jesus is the revelation of God's love, and Jesus gives us knowledge, then while Jesus is in the flesh on this earth, we better crave the opportunity to watch the love of Christ revealed. Unbelievable. Next slide. Now, Christ came to do two things, John says. First of all, in your circle number 14, Christ appeared to destroy the works of the devil. So he comes in the flesh for what purpose? First, to destroy the works of the devil. And, and you remember when we, when we wrestled with this concept, we were talking about, like, especially as dudes, like we love this. But it's a phenomenal picture of what ultimately will be victory through Christ for all of us who are believers. He came to destroy the works of Satan. Now, what did Satan come to do? Scripture says that Satan came to steal, kill, and destroy. So Jesus came to give life and life to the full. The exact opposite. But he didn't just appear to do that. Number 15, Christ appeared to take away sin. Yes! He came to destroy the works of the devil and to take away sin. Which is why John repetitively teaches that if you're born of God, you will not continue on sinning. Because Christ came to take away sin. John says it's not perfection. If you say you're perfect, you're a liar. But that you will not continue on repetitively sinning because Christ came to take away sin. Now, what that makes, one of my favorite lines in John is number 16, Jesus is the Savior. Yes. If, listen, if he can destroy the works of the evil one, if he can take away sin, then guess what that makes him? It makes him the savior. Not just of this little, it makes him the savior of everything. It makes him the focus of the entire scriptures. It makes his, listen, is anyone else just excited about Christ? As I go through this, man, my heart just over, is overwhelmed with a deep love for Christ. He is our savior. Now, this gets really, really fun when it comes to number 17. If Christ appeared to take away sin, then the question is, how did he do that? 
If he came to take away sin, then, then what's the plan there? Well, the first thing that we studied in John, uh, 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, is that Jesus is the propitiation for sin. In, in other words, he's the, the substitute taking on the wrath of God so that his blood means something as the perfect Passover lamb. He takes on all of the sin and all of the wrath of God as a substitute in the place of those he would say, becoming the propitiation for sin. But not just that, number 18. The blood of Jesus cleanses. So he comes in the flesh. He appears to take away sin. He's the propitiation for our sin. So much so that his blood cleanses us from sin. Listen, can I have a... There's some of you in here who if I asked you, if I were to have a conversation with you, and I would say, are you a believer? And you would say, yeah, I believe. Can I ask you this question? There's many of you who have entered this room tonight completely and utterly defeated. You acclaim Christianity, but your sin and your shame is so overwhelming that the defeat you can literally see on your face. Christ came to take that shame, to take that sin, to be the savior of your life. And so in our defeat, aren't we lessening the value of the gospel? If we're not able to rest and trust that the blood of Christ cleanses me. See, the problem is the church has lessened the blood so much so that it still becomes something that I can somehow, by my good duty and sacrifice, make Christ happy. That is a lie. That idea that Christ is looking down and at my good sacrifice, God sees me as a great servant. Only through the blood of Christ am I given worth. Only through the blood of Christ am I given purpose. And so when you see that the blood of Christ cleanses us from sin, understand the cleansing process. He can cleanse. Why? Because God is pure and in Christ there's no sin. So what happens? Number 19. That means he is faithful and just. To forgive. All of this happened in John. Pretty unbelievable, isn't it? That in five short chapters, all of this deep theology and doctrine could just be poured out. But this, my friends, is just the beginning. All right, next slide. Because of all of this, it culminates in number 20, that Christ then is the righteous advocate. If Christ is the Savior, if He can take away sin, if He came in the flesh, if He had no sin and lived perfectly, if His blood cleanses, if He was the propitiation, then guess what? He's the righteous advocate. He becomes what all the time a depraved people needed. 
making him this figure that was being waited on the entire scriptures. And then finally, sinful, depraved people get their righteous advocate. Come on. But not just that in verse or in number 21. We see uh, in John's writings in chapter five, verse 18, that there is uh, not just um, a cleansing that comes through Christ or Christ just isn't our righteous advocate, but but he's also our protection. Nothing can take us from the grip of God because of Christ being the righteous advocate. So God is love. He sends the spirit. The spirit lives in and abides in his children. Christ comes, becomes the righteous advocate. And all of a sudden, this beautiful picture of the Trinity converges here. Some are called children of God. After all of that, some can know God, can see God, can interact with God, can be humbled by God, can glorify God. Can I pause here with you? Does this not lessen your significance a little bit? Does this not, as you sit in your seat, humble you a little bit? To remind you of the great privilege it is to be called the child of God? That God's plan would so sovereignly manifest itself in all of these things so that some could be saved. Do you guys see this? It's this that Christians aren't seeing. Why do I say that? Because if Christians understood this, that because of all of this, then some are called children of God, then we would be grateful. Thanksgiving would just come out of our heart all of the time. We would continually be giving thanks because we would understand all of the grace and mercy that had to be poured out so that our depraved, sinful souls could be saved by the grace of Christ. You guys understand this. And so all of this converges at the fact that there are some, John says, over and over and over that are born of God and that are children of God. So then... What about the children of God? Next slide. Number 23. John says that children of God, they have life. Do do you guys remember this? We talked about this concept a few weeks ago. That of all of the things that you could have in this culture, you never really have it because culture keeps feeding you something else. But when as a child of God, you have life in Christ, then you need nothing else else. When you have life in Christ, you need nothing else. Those children of God have life. Number 24. When you're a child of God, John says, his commands are not burdensome.
I wish someone would have taught me when I was a kid how to worship in suffering. I told you guys last week about having to go and see that family of the, um, the mother who was dying of cancer. And today I spoke at the funeral. And I'm sitting there and I'm watching this, all this crowd. And the thought just keeps going through my mind. I wish someone would have taught me how to worship in suffering. And you know why I, I don't feel like I understand that concept still to this day? Because it has been thrusted into my dome that God's commands are burdensome. That they weigh on me. Pray more. Do more. Read the Bible more. That's all I heard growing up. Do this. Do that. General commando style. And so all that, I, all that was ingrained in my dome was that the more that I did, then the better that I was. Or, or that the more that I did, at least these people were happy. A child of God understands that his commands are not burdensome. They are a privilege, an opportunity to glorify God. Oh God, what would you have me do? Thank you for the call. How many of you have come in this room tonight feeling the weight of the dues? In fact, today, as you were evaluating your Christian walk, instead of being encouraged by the opportunity that you have to follow such a great God in your mind, you're thinking, great. Got to stink and read my Bible today, you know? Got to do the calendar devotional as I, you know, whatever. I got to do this. Instead of, we get to serve God. Those are his children. But are they? Is that the way that we're revealing ourselves in America, church? Would the world look at us and say, now those people have been freed. The commands that come from the scriptures aren't burdensome. In fact, it's as if they enjoy doing them. Suffering or not. Can we learn together what it means to be a child of God enjoying the commands that he provides? Next slide. We learn this about children of God. That if you are a child of God, God hears your prayers if prayed in his will. We learned a few weeks ago. And not just that, but in uh, number 26, he doesn't just hear them, but he answers prayer. There's interaction with God, not just appeasal. If you're a child of his, you can have interaction with the great God of the universe that has the sovereign plan. To seek and save what was lost. Unbelievable. Next slide. Now coming out of what it means to be a child of God. And for his commands to not be burdensome. I want to spend the rest of our time here. Number 27. Is that they, these individuals would believe in the name of God's son Jesus. Now John was writing to Christians. So why would he tell them, believe in the name of God's son, Jesus? Why would he communicate that? He would communicate it because his desire was that as the spirit speaks and confesses Christ, we are continually being reminded of the gospel. Continually remembering Jesus. That's what we do when we come here and worship. We remember Christ and what Christ has done. Every time we gather, that's what we do. And so every week we leave saying, I believe in that Jesus is God's son more now than ever. And out of that belief, number 28, 
John says that, that if you want fellowship with him, then you will walk in the light as what? As he is in the light. That your life will look exceedingly different than cultures. That you will be a moving, mobile temple as God now resides in you with his seed, the Holy Spirit. And so walking in the light means uh, number 29. That we're loving one another. John says over and over and over, children of God will love one another. They will not be a jealous people. They will not be a judging people. They will not be a gossiping people. They will be a people that love one another. Through all of their personal depraved hindrances, they will come together and because of their bond to me, they will love one another. Listen, is that command burdensome to you? You like look around this room and you're like, there's some people in here. A, I don't love, and B, if I'd started to love them, you know, it'd be really, really, really hard. If loving one another is burdensome, what does that expose about our heart? If God is love, and loving one another is a burden, because listen, there's some people in your mind right now that are Christian friends of yours. You don't even, you don't even care to love, you don't even want, and you don't even desire to love them. Doesn't that reveal that that command to you is pretty burdensome? But John says that if you're a child of God, the commands aren't burdensome. They're a joy, even if they're difficult. Number 30. He told us in chapter 2, verse 15, that we are not to love the world. That if we're walking in the light as he is in the light, one of the ways that that is manifested is we will not love the world or anything of the world. You guys remember what uh, chapter 2, verse 15 and 17 says? Because the world and its desires will what? They'll pass away. They're done. They will fade. Which leads to number 31. So keep yourself from idols. If the world has nothing to give, if the world has nothing to provide, then why, oh why, would I worship anything else outside of Christ? Why would I look to anything else for fulfillment? Why would I desire anything else? No, keep yourselves from idols. Now the last two, number 32. John said, if you're to walk in the light, then one of those things is, you're not going to let people deceive you. Here's what I want to say about this piece. We focused a lot in John about the, the heresy of the Gnostics. That they had come and they started messing with the gospel, primarily with the blood of Jesus. If any heresy, if any teaching, if any book, if any Christian magazine or Oprah television show or reality, whatever it is, if anything messes with the blood of Christ, it messes with everything. Let no one deceive you, children of God, John says. Do not be deceived by these false, fake ideologies, but rather... Number 33, test the spirits. Discern. Put the spirits up against the word of God. Um, so, so how does yours look right now? How's it looking? 
All of your pens work okay? It's looking pretty sweet there. Any extra doodles by anybody? Yeah. When I made this the first time, and I sat back and I looked at all of this, and I had a second to take it all in. John writes over and over to his readers that they would be assured. He says over and over and over, may you know, may you know, may you be assured, be encouraged, may you know. Listen, if you're a child of God, I look at this and I say, how couldn't you be assured? How couldn't you be encouraged? How couldn't you finally realize your own ability How couldn't you sit back as the church and finally just be grateful? As I looked at this in my office, the covenant of God was overwhelming. The promise of God that His love endures forever. That His covenant cannot be broken that he continues to pursue, continues to save. And look, that covenant runs so deep. If you're a child of God in here, because of the sinless, blameless Passover lamb, you have the righteous advocate in Christ unifying you to God the Father in a covenant that can never be broken. John says, how could you not be assured? How could you not be encouraged? How could you not look at all of this truth and say, God, thank you for saving me. Instead, we spend all of our time, or at least most of our time in the church, coming together, reading the word to get the high off of conviction And never pausing just to give God thanks for what he's done. There are some of you in here who are looking at this and you're like, all of this is nonsense to me. I mean, I just, tonight was my first time and I'm like playing fill in the blank in some like college course, you know? Let me, let me tell you something. The world is controlled by a father of lies. Making your life a connection to a complete lie. And I know that's harsh and I know that's troubling, but here's the thing that's encouraging is that the gospel of Christ, there's no lies in it. In the gospel of Christ, it's a promise and a covenant that endures forever. And so for you, if you're in here because of Jesus, you can have life too because he's the righteous advocate. And so if you're here and you're like, yeah, that's me, man. I'm going to invite you at the end of this gathering just to come and find one of us so we can continue the conversation. But what about for the rest of us? I've waited all of my life to see a movement of people that view God's commandments and following God as freeing and joyous.
because of his covenant. What does it look like for us to ask God to reveal to us the depth of his love right now? I sit back from that and Romans 8.39 comes to mind that nothing can separate me from the love of God. Does that make sense now? All of the inworkings of God's sovereign plan, nothing can take me away from that grip. I'm protected by Christ and by the covenant of, the, of his blood, which he described as the new covenant. And so here's what we're going to do. Can you guys kill all that for me? And I think that um, we need time just to sit silent. Praying that as we've just looked at all this, that the depth of the love of God would just sit in this room. That we would reflect on his love. That we would be enamored by his love. And that maybe for the first time, we would truly give thanks for that deep, unending, gracious love of God.